Today's guest says, from the outside, my life looked perfect. I traveled the world as a model and a professional dancer, but inside I was soul sick. I felt incredibly alone. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest, Renee Linnell, is a serial entrepreneur who has founded or co-founded five companies. Most of us haven't done one. Renee has a master's degree in business administration. She also has degrees in psychology and dance. So when you think about all that Renee has accomplished, and I've just given you a thumbnail sketch, It's hard to imagine that she is also the author of a memoir titled The Burn Zone, which is about her years with a cult. Renee Linnell, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you, Pamela. It's nice to be here. Well, Renee, you you heard me quote you just a moment ago as having said that from the outside, your life looked just perfect. So how does someone whose life looks perfect manage to spend years with a cult? That's a very good question. And first, I have to say that I don't think that there's enough dialogue out there about soul sickness. And I think oftentimes it's the people whose lives really look perfect from the outside looking in that are struggling the most because they tend to think, well, I have everything and I'm still not happy. And I think when people are still wanting family, wanting a house, wanting a career, they always have that to look forward to and they believe that that will make them happy. But then a lot of times when people have everything and they're still unhappy, they think that they're the only one in the world that feels this way. And I know I certainly thought I was the only one and that nobody understood me and that I had this very deep emptiness and sadness inside that nothing could fill. And I spent my life searching for kind of the answers to why we're here and what happens after we die. I studied all different religions. I traveled all over the world. And when I walked into a meditation seminar and meditated for the first time, and actually quieted my mind for the first time, I felt completely overwhelmed with peace. And I realized that's what I had been searching for, but I erroneously attributed that feeling to the teacher. Let's back up a bit, because I'd like for you to give us your definition of a cult. How do you define what a cult is? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I define a cult is, as a group that's easy to get into, difficult to leave, and where group think takes over, um, and then they really have control of your mind and are able to introduce, in my opinion and in my experience, introduce thinking that's very damaging. When you give that definition, you know, there are all kinds of organizations that could be thought of in that way. The cult that you were in, I can't imagine they defined themselves as a cult. How did they define themselves? What was their name? They, well, I changed all of the names just 
in the book um, because I wanted to, I really wanted my story to be about wholeness and healing and forgiveness and not about revenge. Okay. And I knew if I revealed the identities of the people in the book that then the story would be sensationalized and it would become a revenge story. Um, but they identified themselves as, in the beginning, it was just a school of meditation when the teacher did public seminars. And then once she took on private students, we were signing up for what was labeled a personal and professional development program. So those all sound pretty benign, and it actually sounds pretty healthy and something that everybody would want to think about doing. And it was. In fact, in the beginning, it sounded great. And Again, I parallel this to any toxic relationship where if a woman goes on a date with a man and on the first date he hits her, she won't go on a second date. But usually what a predator does is they build you up, they make you feel seen and understood and cherished and adored, and then they slowly start pulling away your support structure and then introducing self-doubt and then manipulating I want to go back again a bit to Renee prior to becoming a member of this organization. You as a young girl, in fact, by the age of 15, you had experienced several significant losses in your life, including the loss of your father. Would you say that those early and almost persistent losses were what made you perhaps vulnerable to this kind of organization? Definitely. I definitely was, because I was surrounded by so much death and loss as a child, I began questioning everything. And what I I was raised Catholic, and what I was learning in the church and at school just didn't seem to hold answers for me that made me feel better. I thought, what is the point of falling in love with all these people only to have them taken away? It just seems too cruel. And the book, Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss crossed my path right after my father's death. And I was introduced to the thought system that we reincarnate over and over, that we're here to learn these fabulous life lessons, and we constantly reunite with souls that we love in each lifetime. And at 15 years old, I thought, well, I can't prove that we live, we die, it's over. I can't prove that we reincarnate, but I know that believing that we reincarnate and constantly reunite with souls that we love brings me peace. And so I chose that belief system and set one one foot on the spiritual path that took me on a really wild ride. What was your relationship with your mom during that time as as a teenager? My mother was an alcoholic and a pill addict and very emotionally abusive. And I had a twin brother who she adored, and she made it very clear that she would have been happy with just him, happier with just him. And my father had been my hero and my protector, and so when he died, I was left with this abusive, damaged woman that tried her best but really, really... um, set me up for failure, and uh, it caused me to go searching for other people to mentor me. And that is another reason why I fell prey to this female spiritual teacher, because she seemed like the perfect mentor. 
Well, you know, as you describe your relationship with your mom, even though she may have been physically present, and there were certainly times when she wasn't, that was a loss. Yes, I lost her. When I lost my father, she had her addictions under control when my father was alive. But as soon as he died, I lost my mother as well. She disappeared, spiraling down into alcohol and pills. So in in many ways, although, again, from the outside looking in, you you lived with a family that um, at least appeared to have their financial life in control, so you didn't have to worry about that necessarily. Um, You had a brother, you had a home. At 15, again, outside looking in, your life was just great. Right. Yeah, I was on the cheerleading squad. I... In fact, one of my friends, one of my childhood friends read parts of my book and she said, I had no idea you were the girl at the top of the pyramid with the cheerleaders. And we spent the summers on a boat in the Bahamas. It just really, from the outside looking in, it looks like I lived this dream life. Which sort of reminds us or hopefully reminds us that you cannot tell from appearances what somebody's life is actually like, what their spirit is actually going through or longing for. Right. And I do think so many of us look out there and it looks like everybody else has it figured out, but we don't. And then we don't talk about it. There's not enough dialogue about it. And so I believe a lot of people are walking around kind of depressed or lost or soul sick and thinking they're the only ones. So I I just would love listeners to realize you're not alone. So many of us feel this way or have felt this way. That's very true. Renee Linnell, author of The Burn Zone, a memoir. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Renee, I'd like for you to introduce us to Lakshmi. Okay. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We'll be back in just a moment. about Lakshmi, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and Vishnu. Who who were they in your life? You are pronouncing them correctly. And Lakshmi was the spiritual leader of this group, and she was the person I was first introduced to as the leader and the teacher. And Vishnu was a man in the beginning. He was just a man that looked like her bodyguard. And as I became a student of the group, I realized that he was her first student. He'd been studying with her for 10 years. He was also the man that ran her company and protected her and drove her around. And I was never sure. We as the students were never sure if they were lovers, but we assumed they were. And eventually Vishnu began taking over the teachings teaching the students a couple years into my time with them. So many times when I think the the public at large hears about cults, hears about these kinds of groups, the leader is a man. So it's of note that 
you were coming from really a very painful relationship with your mom and sort of walking into a relationship with a woman who sounds like she had all the characteristics that you longed for in a mom. Exactly. She did. She, when I first went to the very first meditation seminar, I was expecting an older woman with long gray hair and mala beads and a white robe and sandals and out walked this gorgeous woman in her late 30s in what looked like an Armani business suit. It was black. It was tailor fit. She had stiletto heels. And the music she picked for us to meditate to was Navros from a Matrix fight scene. And that was when I experienced all the peace and white light sitting in front of her. And then she went on to explain that what she taught was that we would sharpen our minds through meditation and we would use our careers as our offering to the divine. And so she was this polished woman straight off of what looked like Wall Street saying that I'm going to teach you how to sharpen your mind so you can find peace and then really rock your career And so for me, she was everything I'd been searching for as far as a big sister, mother, mentor, guide, teacher. Yeah, there was nothing not to like. How old were you when you first met her? I was 33. Okay. And you talk very early on during that first exposure to Lakshmi that you were told that you were in the burn zone. And that, of course, is the name of your memoir. What exactly is the burn zone? Well, it's interesting because I had named the book, I Drank the Kool-Aid, The Long Journey Back to Myself. And my publisher, She Writes Press, um, Brooke Warner, who runs that company, and she's wonderful. She said, Renee, this book is not just about joining a cult. It's about the subtle ways women give their power away every day. So we need a new title. And then she read it, and she said, she came up with The Burn Zone. And when when you read the book, you see that there is a theme that goes all the way through the book. I open the book with a quote by Viktor Frankl, which says, what is to give light must endure burning. And I realized that as I went through this process, it was like a crucible. And I felt fired up and melted down until I was unrecognizable. And I think that life does that too most of us when we're living a life that's not truly authentically ours and if we're lucky we come out of the other side of that shattering knowing being much more sure of who we truly are and what we truly want to do in life for those folks listening who have had similar early experiences as you have had in which, for any number of reasons, they've experienced any number of losses, uh, whether it's an actual death or the loss of someone who's present in their lives. They are they are vulnerable to um, someone who appears to be everything that they didn't have. What do you say to those folks about trying to avoid what's so easy for them to feel so connected and wanting to be so connected to? Well, I do. I guess it sounds cliche a little bit because we hear it all the time, which is everything we're searching for is already inside of us. Mm. And, and I have to say from everything that I went through, I finally discovered that, that my biggest key to healing was self-love and that I had to give myself the love and acceptance that I was searching for from others. And I think that any time 
we make other people responsible for our happiness or for our sense of self-worth, we just put ourselves in such a precarious situation because humans are so fickle. And when they're in a good mood, they're wonderful to us. And when they're in a bad mood, they're not so wonderful to us. And so then we end up being like a yo-yo on a string going up and down and up and down. And so I would just say you have to find a way to love yourself and to realize that we're all broken and we're all wounded and we're all flawed and being human is really messy, but we're also really perfect and beautiful. And I don't really know how to teach people to love themselves, but I just know for me it was a slow journey and it was bit by bit. There were many things that happened as you were engaged in this group that one almost expects to happen, particularly with a cult um, or our sense of a cult. You were to give up your friends. You were to give up your belongings. You were really to sort of pull yourself inward and closer and closer to the cult. As they were asking you, guiding you to do these things, what kind of sense did they make to you in the moment? It's interesting because it happened so slowly and so insidiously, and there were red flags all along the way, but I pushed those aside. I didn't listen to them. Um, And so what they said is because it was a spiritual path, and I think that this is very common in spiritual paths, that, or with spiritual teachers that aren't the best, that they tell you that in order to be spiritual, you have to let go of the things that make you human. And so maybe the friends that want you to, for me, it was my friends, my surfing friends. Well, maybe now that I was changing into a computer programmer, maybe my surfing friends would be a bad influence because I wouldn't want to study or work as much. And then I had been a professional dancer, and maybe my dancing friends were keeping me up late at night so that I couldn't meditate as well. Um, And then as I was changing from a dancer into a computer programmer and running the company of my spiritual teachers and meditating more, um, then they said, well, those old activities that you did will kind of trap you in the old you, and you're becoming the new you, and so maybe you should let go of those old activities and And I just was so desperate to become a saint, an enlightened saint, that I was really willing to do what they said, and it it made sense at the time. You know, as you talk about the reasons they gave you for going through the changes, particularly the social changes, they make sense. They sound reasonable. Um, What you go through in more detail in Burn Zone is how you moved from uh, a dancer to a computer programmer, which is quite a switch. Um, how you became uh, so integral to the running of their company, and I think that was after you uh, uh, paid $15,000 for a trip to Egypt. Um, right. and And it was a $15,000 that you paid in full, which really brought you to their attention. We're going to take a break, but when we come back... I would like for you to share with the audience some of the red flags that, in hindsight, you saw and chose not to. Okay.
some of the red flags that you saw and of course hindsight is always brilliant but what are some of those red flags the biggest red flag for me was when they started introducing what they called the occult forces and they said because we would be so bright from meditating there would be these dark forces that would be drawn to us and would mess with our minds and would make us want to leave the path or not really trust our teachers. And of course, that was my intuition. So when my intuition would say, this isn't really the right thing to be doing, I started worrying maybe these are these dark forces. And also they said that, my, that because what we were studying was tantric Buddhist mysticism, and what made it tantric was the fact that we live in the world and the ashram is in our mind. And so we use everything as our spiritual practice. We don't close ourselves off in an ashram in a mountain. And so they said it's the hardest path there is and that our egos would not want us to change. So every time I thought, well, I don't want to listen to what these people are saying and I don't want to work for them all the time, I thought, oh, it's my ego is so strong it just can't handle being told what to do. So that was another red flag. And then... Of course, the stripping away of my friends and family and the activities that I loved because that slowly was taking away my support structure. That's a huge red flag. But I think the biggest red flag is any group that is easy to get into and then makes it difficult for you to leave, which in our case they said we'd be ruining our karma if we left. Gotcha. So for parents who are listening, whose child may be in a cult or they fear their child falling prey to a cult, what words of wisdom can you give parents? I'm sure parents do not want to hear this, but all I can say is you can't try to pull them out because they will fight you. When I was in the group, nobody could have gotten me out because I thought they just don't understand and a lot of times I think it's the same when you see someone you love in a bad relationship because the person will say, well, you just don't see this person the way I do. And so for parents, I really believe the best thing you could do is say to your child, I love you and I trust you to make your own decisions and I trust you to do what's right for you. And while this scares me, I'm going to love you and support you and let you do what you need to do. And please know I am always here for you if you need to talk and then leave them alone. Because then they know the parent loves me, isn't interfering, and then they go to the teacher and they think, well, the teacher's not being that nice to me, and the teacher's introducing self-doubt, and then the parent, you go back to the parent, the parent doesn't question me, the parent supports me, the parent tells me I'm great. And so that my brother did that for me, and it really helped. It sounds like if the parents provide their child or their children with that safe place to land, that is the most powerful way uh, to allow a child to leave those kinds of organizations. Yes, because the child has to decide to leave. Anybody in a cult has to decide to leave on his or her own. And yes, knowing that there's that safe place and that the parent's not 
telling the child that there's something wrong with the child. Um, I think that I, I know from my experience that's the best thing you can do. One of the things that, and there there are so many um, experiences that you share in the burn zone um, that are both compelling and heartbreaking and breathtaking, and I don't even know what words to describe all that you experience. Um, you also experience becoming an ordained monk after you did something pretty extraordinary uh, in in the group. What was that like, becoming an ordained monk? For me, it was a dream come true because I had just really my entire life I wanted to become an enlightened saint, and I wanted to spread peace and love and light the way the saints did. And I had this dream that, okay, maybe I could be in Manhattan and on a subway car, and me just sitting there would touch everybody in the subway car with such peace and such love and such light that they left feeling uplifted. So this was my goal in life. Um, so when I got the opportunity to be ordained as a monk, for me, it was a moment where I was dedicating my entire life, every second of my day, to serving God or source or whatever you term you want to use and to spreading love and light in this world. And so I just was ecstatic about it. How did you finally make the decision to leave the group? Well, it was, in a way, it was made for me because, and this is my joke, which I wasn't funny at the time, but um, I ended up becoming the consort, which is the sexual partner of the male teacher. And I thought that my female, that the female teacher knew about it, and it turned out that she did not, and that they were lovers, and that she was furious. So she threw me out of the group by giving me an impossible task, which was to go get an MBA from one of the hardest business schools in the country and then start a business that made $10 million profit after taxes. And once I did that, I could come back to the group. So my joke is if you want to get thrown out of a cult, if you sleep with a spiritual teacher's boyfriend, she'll throw you right out. But the, the, sad, the sad thing is that I stayed loyal and faithful to the group for the next two and a half years that I was on my own because I... I really believed in them, um, and it wasn't until the business that I started, um, I had a terrible falling out with my business partner because I was no longer trusting my intuition, so I chose a really bad business partner. We ended up in the New York tabloids. I lost close to $500,000, and my entire paradigm of the world really shattered, and in, in my brokenness, I started to see clearly, and that's when I realized I had been in a cult. The Again, all of the experiences that you endured um, as you write about them are extraordinary on, on so many levels. Not extraordinary because very often I think that is what happens in a cult, but extraordinary that a human being could go through that, come out on the other side, and be sane and whole. And so congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. What What is your, in, in the few moments that we have left, can you just tell us how you're doing today? 
I am doing so well. I have to say now that I'm finally out the other side, it's been five and a half years, which I've, it took way longer than I thought it would, but I love the person I am now, and I love the changes that have happened to me. And it's just made me so much more compassionate and so much more forgiving and so much more open and softer and kinder. And um, and now I'm no longer searching. I realize we're in these human bodies for such a short period of time, and really we're just meant here to live in joy and to love each other. Renee, how can folks find out more about what you're doing they can go to my website. It's www.renelinnell.com. And can you spell your name for us? Yes, it's R-E-N-E-E-L-I-N-N-E-L-L. Dot com. Dot com. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today and, and really for sharing your story. I think it will be an eye-opener and a help to so many people. Thank you, Renee. Thank you, Pamela. I loved that. And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening today, so do email me at Pamela, that's P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. And again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Mindtalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Be sure you go to the mindtalk.org homepage to sign up for our weekly free giveaway. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. (laughs) 